right, let's get to it. You guys know where we're at. If you got your Bibles, turn to the back. We're in Revelation. As you turn there, let me just kind of pose a question to you. Do you feel um, like you're, we're in the midst of a culture war? Not a rhetorical question. I know it's awkward to talk in church. But do, you, do you kind of feel like the midst of, you hear a lot of people talk about a culture? I see some heads nodding. How many feel that way? Okay. How many will never raise your hand in church? No matter what happens. A few of you. Okay. Uh, you hear a lot of people talking about a culture war that we find ourselves in. There's a, a conflict between like com- competing worldviews, value systems, what our society should look like. And really the question is, how do, you, how do we fight a culture war? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to fight a culture war? And let me just back up and say, let's define we, because when you hear culture war and you hear we, you're like, whoa, who, who are we? Or is this talking about Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, liberals and progressives? Like, there are so many sides, it seems like we're very divided. So who do you mean by we? Let me just phrase it this way. How do Christians fight a culture war? How are we supposed to engage in this kind of battle of worldviews and different values that we want to see lived out in our society? Like, how are Christians supposed to engage in this? Because we are in a fight, and oftentimes Christianity isn't talked about that way, but it is a reality. It's a biblical reality that we do find ourselves in the midst of a conflict. And we pointed uh, to this passage before. This is in Ephesians, but it helps kind of, uh, there you go. I don't know, okay. Uh, this is Paul talking. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. You guys have read this before. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he goes on to talk about the armor of God, but the command is put on the armor of God. Basically, if you're a Christian, put a helmet on because you find yourself in the midst of a fight, but it's different than what you might expect. Because it's not just that social issue or this social issue, but behind these issues, there's a greater spiritual reality that's going on. We don't fight just against flesh and blood. There's a cosmic battle of good and evil, and it's been going on. It's not like unique to our culture or new to us, but ever since the fall, there's been a conflict in every society. Are you going to worship the one true God, or are you going to worship yourself and make your own choices? And we find ourselves in the midst of it. The question is, how do we fight it? What are we supposed to do if in the midst of this reality that we find ourselves in? And Michael pointed out last week, as we've kind of been going through the book of Revelation, um, this has given us a lot of different vantage points or perspectives. He compared it to watching a football game, which was just genius. I love that illustration. Uh, if you're watching a football game, you got a lot of different cameras. Same game, but you kind of get different. you got the blimp view. you got the sideline view. you got the end zone view. you got all these different kind of camera angles, and it's given us different vantage points of the situation we find ourselves in and how we're responding, what God is doing. Uh, And and a couple weeks back, we kind of got to look at our sideline. Like judgment is coming, but God in his sovereignty is kind of restraining uh, evil, restraining judgment until all his people are sealed and safe. So it's kind of like saying to our sideline, I got you. Don't worry. I got, I got you. But then you go to the other sideline and he's like, you're going to get yours. Like judgment's coming and the wrath of God is a real reality. Well, today we kind of get a view, a camera view of the playing field. How are we supposed to live? 
What are we supposed to do? What's action in this game look like for us? And I got three points for you, really just kind of three parts to one point, but we'll kind of break it in pieces before we put it all together. And my hope, my hope for all of us is that we would leave here with a better understanding of our calling and a greater resolve to live it out. Right? That's my hope. Like when we're done, okay, okay, I get as a Christian what I'm called to in these times, and you have some motivation or deeper resolve to live that out. That's that's my hope. So if we don't accomplish that, either I failed or you failed. I'm gonna say you, but you may say me, but that's what we're going for together. Sound good? All right, Revelation uh, chapter 10, uh, I'm going to put on the screen, or not me, but on the screen, uh, our verses starting in chapter 10. I just want to give us a little running start, so I'm going to go into chapter 9 and read the last couple verses there to give us some context. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murderous or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. So what we're dealing, our context is despite the chaos of this world and the judgment of God, you have unrepentant people. They're just like, this is who I am. This is how I live. I don't care. And they stay in the rebellion of God. So then we get into chapter 10 and this is what it says. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Now, let's pause here. I think this, this, this um, seems to me to be the angel of the Lord or, or Christ himself. And that could be a bit confusing because we're getting a lot of talk of angels, and even here it's referenced as an angel. But the reason I think that is in the Old Testament, God alone is the one who comes in the clouds, except in Daniel 7, where it said the Son of Man comes in the clouds. And that was a term that Jesus used for himself quite often, as the Son of Man. And he's not saying, I am just a man. It was a messianic term. He's like, I'm the Messiah. And there was pictured to come in the clouds. In Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 7, we see Jesus coming in the clouds. Uh, the angel said to have a rainbow over his head. Now, they didn't have pride parades back then, so we can't like read our context into this context. So it's like, what would it mean to them? Well, as I've said, there's a lot of Ezekiel in Revelation, and this has meaning there. In fact, God reveals himself in Ezekiel chapter 1 with kind of a bow, a rainbow over his head. Uh, it says his face was like the sun, just like Christ in Revelation 1.16. It says his feet are like pillars of fire, just like the description of Jesus in Revelation 1.15. His voice is like a lion, and Jesus is the lion of Judah. Uh, and in his hand is a scroll that is open. And who can open the scroll? Jesus, right? So for those reasons, I'm saying, I think this is Jesus, but it's apocalyptic literature, so you can't just like come out and say it. It's got to be poetic, and it's got to have imagery. But I think this is, what Je- this is Jesus here in this situation, and this is what it says. His right foot is on the sea, and his left foot is on the land. So he's like this giant kind of image, this majestic image, and he's kind of straddling the earth and showing that God is over everything, and he's sovereign over his creation. And there's some clear Old Testament imagery here. You have a cloud uh, with a pillar of fire, and you have a rainbow. So if we were going to do like trivia, um, if I should say like, hey, winner gets a free book at the Resource Center, which I have no jurisdiction to do. So don't, you can try it, uh, see if it works. But if I said, when you hear a cloud and a pillar of fire, 
Old Testament, what comes to mind? The Exodus, right? Leading the, the Israelites out from into the wilderness that God led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire uh, by night. What about rainbow? When you hear rainbow, Old Testament. Noah, the flood, right? So you get these two imagery, and both of those are situations or stories of God saving his people through judgment. Like all the plagues in Egypt and all the kids, they were rescued out of that. He led them out of that. Um, he was able to rescue his people over that judgment. The wickedness on earth when the flood came, but he was able to rescue his people on the ark. Like God is able to save his people even through judgment. So what he's saying is like, guys, take heart. Our God is king over land and sea. And he will save his people through judgment and lead them home. He's got you. He's got you. Then he goes on and he says this. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. That's a very frustrating verse, right? Have you ever had that friend who like started a story and they're like, I probably shouldn't tell you that. You're like, well, you got to now. Like you already started. You got to finish it. Well, he does, and he doesn't have to. He just stops. So you're just speculating. What are, you, what are these seven thunders? What does this mean? If you had to speculate, thunder often uh, kind of communicates a divine voice from heaven, uh, often used in judgment type things. So this is, could be like a divine judgment, probably another series of judgments, just like you have the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, maybe you got the thunders. So it's like, what, what's going on here? We, we don't know. Because here's what we know. He didn't slip. It wasn't like, ooh, I wasn't supposed to say that. God doesn't slip, right? So what's happening here? Again, it's just speculation. I feel like he's kind of saying, you're on a need-to-know basis, and here's what you need to know. You don't need to know everything. But you need to know that I'm in control, and I can handle this, and I have things in store, and you need to trust me. And God is able to judge the wicked, and he's able to save the righteous. And we're like, still, what are the thunders? I don't know. We'll find out. But God is able to save his people. So let's keep reading. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand over to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, remember that, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants and prophets. So he said, there'll be no more delay. Basically, there's going to come a time when time's up. There is an end to this. There is a completion to it. There's going to be an end, and at the end, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. Not revealed, because it's already been revealed, but it will be fulfilled. And you've got to ask, well, what is the mystery of God? Well, that is a term that Paul often used. Uh, one of the places you can see it is in Ephesians 1. I'm not going to read it to you just for time's sake. But in it we find the mystery of God is the gospel. It's how God saves people in Jesus Christ. Because all through the Old Testament, you're trying, the mystery is, who's this seed of Eve? Who's this descendant of Abraham? Who's the promised seed of David, the king that's going to sit on? Like, who's this Messiah? Who's going to rescue us? Who's going to save us? How do you reconcile Jew and Gentile? Like, how is it going to be done? And the answer, church, is well, Who? Yeah, I don't ask tricky questions, right? Because <laughs> if I did, it would create awkward moments just like that. 
right? It's Jesus. Like Jesus is the, the fulfillment of the mystery or the real, the mystery of God, like how God is going to save sinners and reconcile sinners back to himself. So it's, it's Jesus. So that's been revealed at the first coming, but here he's saying the mystery of God will be fulfilled. It'll be, it'll be completed at the seventh trumpet. It's complete. All of God's people are saved, but the seventh trumpet haven't sounded yet. So until then, in this time where we find ourselves, what are we to do? How are we to live? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Then, as in until the seventh trumpet sound, like where we find ourselves now, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. I'm sure he didn't ask like that. Give me a little, I mean, just the scenario of the situation. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it because that's what you do when a giant majestic angel tells you to do something. It's not complex. It's like, so I did it. He told me I'll eat it. Right. And he says, it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy, prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Okay, we just got to like be honest with our kind of reading of this. When we hear take and eat a scroll, that's odd to us. Like, what do, what do you mean eat a scroll? Like that, we hear that and this is like, this is a bit odd. It would not be odd to them. Um, in fact, this is very common Old Testament language. Ezekiel was told to take and eat the scroll. Jeremiah was told to take and eat the scroll. And it was kind of kicking off their prophetic ministry. Like, I got something for you to share, so you need to take it in. You need to take it in so you can tell it out. Uh, again, Ezekiel was called to be a prophet to Israel, and this kicked off his ministry in that. And I think just like Ezekiel uh, was called by God to be a, a prophet with authority to Israel, John is saying, hey, I have authority from God to the church. And I have a message for the church from God, and you need to listen to what I'm saying. But before he's uh, told to proclaim it, he's told to eat it, to take it in, to, em- to embrace it, to own it, to know it. But the reason he's called to eat it was because he needed to eventually share it and tell it to others. Now, just a side note before we go on. If we are going to be ministers of God's word, then we got to know God's word. I know that's mind-blowing, but I don't want to skip it. We cannot share the word of God if we don't know the word of God. And if we don't know the word of God, we become ministers of our opinion. And every spiritual conversation or just every conversation you're in sounds like, well, I think, and I think, well, I think this, and I think this. But we're not called to communicate what we think. We're called to communicate what God's word says. And if we're going to do that, we have to know what it says. So here, here, let me, I don't put this on the screen, but I do want to share it with you. This is uh, 2 Timothy 4. Paul's talking to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, his kingdom, so kind of that in time language again, but before then, this is what he's getting charged to do, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For a time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Now remember that. He's called to endure suffering because if you're called to preach the word to a group of people who don't want to hear the word, how do you think that's going to go? Not well. So Paul's advice is just like, well, endure it. That's what you got to do. That's what you're called to do. Endure it. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So we are called to proclaim the word of God. But to do that, we have to know the word of God. Now, I want to even get a layer underneath knowing the word of God. Here's, here's a question to throw your way. Is the word of God sweet to you? Like, is honey a good description? Or would you be more fitting to use broccoli? Like, I know it's good for me. I just don't really want to eat it unless you put a lot of cheese on it. (laughs) And by cheese, I mean ruin all nutrition and twist it till it's not even saying what it's supposed to say. Like your itching ears just want to hear it. But is the word of God sweet to you? Do you love it? Do you find comfort in it? Do you find peace? Do you get excited in reading? Do you find your Savior in it? Does it lead you to worship? Do you love the Word of God? Because listen, if, if it is not sweet to you, it's not going to be compelling to others. If you don't find it sweet, then it will not be compelling to others when you communicate it. And in the fight that we find ourselves in, it's essential to have a love for God's Word. Before we get into like what we need to do, we just need to start with who we need to be. And we need to be people who think the word of God is sweet. We love it. It's awesome. Can't wait to share it. I put my whole life under it. Is that true of you? Because it can seem sometimes that those are claiming Christ in the culture wars. It seems like they hate the brokenness of our world more than they love the word of God. It's going to be quick, like, what about this? And I'm sick of this. And I can't believe this is happening. Somebody needs to do something about this. And this is going wrong. But they never, like, show the good news. Bring to the table the, the blessing of the word of God, the redemption of Jesus Christ, the hope we find in him. Like, it's just all bad, bad, bad. And it's just a perspective of looking at the world and knowing sin is out there, but not looking in the word and seeing answers in here. The best thing we can do in the midst of a broken, sinful world under judgment is be people who genuinely find the word of God sweet and love it. But we're called to share it. We're called to proclaim it. People that proclaim it got to love it and people that love it got to proclaim it. He says it at the end. He says, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter and I was told, you must again prophesy to many peoples or about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, this is the global spreading of the gospel. Like, this is what we got to do. It's got to go. That's got to go to peoples. It's got to go to nations. It's got to go to kings. It's got to go everywhere. We got to see this gospel spread. So part of like our role in this fight this, uh, that we're called into or we're caught in is to be people who proclaim the word of God. You got to love it. You got to take it in. If you don't love it, it's not going to be compelling but you actually got to talk about it. You got to proclaim it. You, you actually have to bring up Jesus Christ in your conversation with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. You got to drop some J bombs. 
right? You got, you got to communicate the gospel. Like this is what we're called to do. And this is such an important part of God's plan. This is in the midst of kind of seeing God's judgment on the earth. But what he's saying with like, here's how I want my people to act and behave in the midst of my judgment over this world is to proclaim the gospel. Because that is more powerful than just God's wrath in his redemptive plan. You know what I, you know what I mean by that? Like, this is more powerful than an earthquake. Because most likely, somebody goes through an earthquake and doesn't make the conclusion... I should think I should repent and turn to Jesus. But you see an earthquake, you see a tsunami, you see a volcano, you see a derecho, you see any of these kind of, you know, cosmic destruction in our world. What's really a part of God's plan and what's powerful is when God's people proclaim God's message in this world. It's like this is what's going to lead to redemption. And he says to uh, prophesy about uh, many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. I think that word about is better translated against, that you would prophesy against many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. While doing that's going to be kind of rough. That'll be kind of rough. I mean, that, that's why it's said to be sweet and bitter. It's sweet as in, in here I find the forgiveness of sins. I, I find God's plan of salvation. I find the connection to my creator. I find comfort and peace. But it's also bitter because communicating this to a rebellious world, that you've got to go out and communicate like, hey, life's not about you. You're actually not in charge. You don't get to determine what's right or wrong. Okay, you're not, that's out of your pay grade. Like you shouldn't just trust your heart. Your heart is wicked and deceitful. You are a sinner. You need to turn and repent to Jesus Christ, your Savior. And if you don't, he is coming to judge you in wrath and fury. How's that going to go? That's the bitter part, right? And you feel it's like when you understand the gospel for the first time, wasn't it sweet? Come on, you can say it. Wasn't it sweet when you realized that your sins were forgiven completely by Jesus Christ? Sweetest news ever. And then you keep reading. And it's like, oh, now you got to go share it. It's like, oh, that's going to be awkward. That's the bitter part. Just like Isaiah. You guys remember Isaiah's call? He had that throne room vision in Isaiah 6. He feels he's in the presence of God. He feels the weight of his sin. He experiences the grace of God and his forgiveness. He wants to live missionally. He responds to God of like, here I am, send me. He doesn't even know where yet. But he's like, whatever you want, I'm willing. I will go. I serve you. Do they know what happens next when he gets his assignment? God's like, okay, we need to go to these people because they're not going to listen to you. They're stubborn. They're not going to repent, and it's going to be rough. And then Isaiah is kind of questioning his willingness at that time. He's like, well, for how long? Till I bring my destruction and completeness. Go. And that's kind of like our calling. Like we are to be ambassadors for Christ in a rebellious world, in a world that does, doesn't want to listen to sound teaching, wants to turn away to whatever their itching ears want to hear. Just tell me I'm enough. Tell me I'm good. Tell me what I'm doing right. Affirm every decision that I make. It's like this is the world that we're called to minister in, and it's going to be rough. That's kind of bitter. But we're everyday missionaries. Like that's our calling. That's what we go out and do. And we're ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. We implore others be reconciled to God. Listen, we have to love the word of God and we have to proclaim the word of God. But in our context, how do you think that's going to go? That's a fair question. And I'm glad you asked it. All right.
That's when we get into chapter 11. He says this, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it was given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, this, this can be a little tricky, um, and be gracious because there's a variety of good and godly people that come to different interpretations. Um, nobody takes everything in chapter 11 literal, but some people take some of what's in chapter 11 literal. Like some people think there's a literal temple that will be rebuilt in the last day. Some people think there's um, literally two witnesses, like in the power of Moses and Elijah, that will come and and bear witness in the time. Some people think that it's a literal um, three and a half years, that 1,260 days or 42 months. Um, For me, I think more consistent view is to see this as symbolic imagery that you see throughout the book and throughout this chapter. I think the two witnesses represent the call on the church um, to bear witness. Um, Everywhere in the New Testament or throughout Scripture, uh, you had to validate something with two witnesses um, how, when we looked at the seven churches, do you remember how many churches uh, only had good things to say about him? Two. Yeah, that was a little harder question than Jesus, but you got it right. I'm proud of you. Right? There's just two there. Um, the 42-month period of time, it seems to be a, a time uh, that, of, that describes ministry in the face of judgment, and we see that in, in Israel's history, specifically with Elijah, uh, the time that he... Uh, was in opposition or hard ministry that was under judgment to Israel, and he prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain. Well, how long didn't it rain? James says this in in, uh, James chapter 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Now, three years, 12 times 3 is 36, plus 6 is 42. That's math, and it just happened, right? I had to prepare all week for that part of the message. but Or you just look at the life of Christ, roughly like a three-and-a-half-year period of time, and what defined his ministry? Opposition, difficulty, ending in death, but ultimately what? Resurrection, which we'll see here in the two witnesses as well. Uh, the temple, I think, describes the people of God. It's always an image of how God and his people uh, connect. To rebuild the temple literally, I think, kind of works against the New Testament teaching that Christ fulfilled all that. Um, that, that we don't need that anymore because it's, it's met in Christ. But even if it is, even if it is a literal temple that's built in the future, even if it is a literal two witnesses, even if it is a literal three and a half years, it doesn't change the main point. So I don't want us to get lost in some of those things and miss the main point. Um, the time, whether literal or symbolic, is limited. The witnesses, whether literal or symbolic, show the need to testify and testify boldly And the measuring of the temple, whether it's a literal temple or symbolic, is God taking account of his people and representing his presence and his care. Um, So those those are the points being made. Now, I think this is where it gets even trickier. Like, I thought it was already tricky. Um, He says, don't measure the court outside the temple or the holy city. That is going to get trampled by the nations. Now, there is a view that says um, the people inside the temple are the people of God, and the people outside the temple or in the outer courts of the Holy City are not the people of God, and the people of God are going to be saved, and the people outside the temple are going to be judged. Here's my problem, or what I see happening here. The outer court is still part of the temple. 
And the holy city is still a place that describes where the people of God live. He's still using language that everywhere talks about a place for God's people. So what I think he's saying is with the contrast he's given between the inner sanctuary where God's protection happens and the outer courts in the holy city where people get trampled, I think he's saying in this limited period of time, God will be with his people spiritually and they won't cave and he won't lose a one of them. And he's going to save every one of them. Even if they die, he's got them. He's put their seal, his seal on them. However, they will go through physical suffering. Now, I know that's not a popular view. This thing I sell a lot of books. Um, one view is that the rapture already has happened and the church was taken out and isn't here anymore. The problem I have with that is if that's the case, then this text has no real relevance to John's audience or the church. And I think the motive of the book is to try to encourage believers who are facing suffering. And he's saying, hey, God has got you. And even if you go through suffering, he has measured you, he knows you, he has sealed you, and he will save you. Even if you die, he's got you. He's trying to instill boldness and confidence. See, one of the things to realize is um, there's a lot of references to the Exodus. And that is like the major event in Jewish history. And John's saying, hey, what happened then? It's going to happen again. God was able to rain down judgment on people that opposed his people and rescue his people out of that. It's going to happen again. God knows how to save his people and punish the wicked. And it's not going to just happen in a city. It's going to happen globally. Like God has got his people. Now, let's press on. He's talking about these two witnesses. He says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the day's of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, I don't think this is literal things that he's talking about. To me, if you kind of follow the imagery, if I had to break it down to have the camera angles, and we've got the sideline camera, we've got the other sideline camera, we've got the game field camera, I think you can get a little locker room camera in here. And the pep talk that's being given to these struggling Christians is do you know what team you're on? Do you know who God is? Do you know what he has done and is able to do? Kind of like go out and play with some confidence. Go out and live for him. Because you get a whole lot of Old Testament imagery happening here with important significance for them. So the two olive trees come from Zechariah 4, um, where the Israelites returned from exile, and they were empowered to rebuild the temple, and they had two anointed figures to do it, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Uh, the, the famous passage from that text is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Like, I'm, I'm going to spiritually empower you to do this. The lampstands of the churches, we saw that in chapter 1. Uh, the reference to fire coming down to consume the enemies is in Second Kings 1. Um, King Isaiah sent men uh, to get Elijah because he wasn't happy with him very much. He was like, go fetch this guy. They tried to do it, and uh, fire rained down and consumed him. So that happened. Uh, and then you get another reference to Elijah in First Kings 17 about shedding the sky and no rain. So when Elijah, we looked at that in James, he prayed and there was no rain. Uh, and the water's turning into blood, and every kind of plague is a reference to the Exodus. So what he's saying is like to these witnesses, to the people proclaiming the gospel through these tough times, to the church, they will be empowered by the Spirit. 
Just like Joshua and Zerubbabel, they will be anointed by my spirit to accomplish my purposes. They will be protected by the Father, just like I was with Elijah. And they will be able to liberate people through the Son, just like what happened in the Exodus when those people found their freedom. And isn't that what we've seen happen? Despite the persecution and the hardship and the injustice and the sin all around us, the gospel has gone forth and it hasn't been able to be stopped. And God's spirit has anointed his people for this task. And the father has protected them. And we've seen through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, people liberated from their sin. He's saying, this is, this is the team you're on. This is the God you serve. You should confidently and faithfully and boldly go and be faithful to him. But that doesn't mean it's going to not be rough. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So symbolically, um, Sodom represented kind of depravity and rebellion against God. Egypt represented the persecution of the people of God, uh, where your Lord was crucified. It's like, don't expect to be treated better than your leader was treated. And he's kind of painting this like, this is the society or the world in which you minister it. Like, you've got to know it. And he goes on. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. That's weird. I don't know if like Christmas time, like were they exchanging presents, but you get the point. They're happy about the death of these two witnesses because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell in the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at the hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, You get another cycle. Oh, no, we're not there yet. This is what seems uh, to be a defeat of God's people. Like they're dead. Uh, The witnesses were killed. They're despised. They're not even going to be put in the grave. But God's people will be vindicated. Then let's go on. Verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Remember that from before? That's when the mystery of God is fulfilled. It blew his trumpet. Um, now it's like time's up. This is the end again. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and is Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and began to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your saints, the prophets, your servants, the prophets and the saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So you kind of get this kind of cosmic judgment language. And there's another cycle that's complete. Just like in chapter 6, it kind of ends with the wiping away of every tear. It's kind of completion. Here you go. It's like we get completion again. Like God's kingdom is now on earth, and he reigns, and we made it, and he's rewarding his saints. It's happening again. And don't miss this. I wish we could go into it more. There's another song. There's another song. There is so much singing in the book of Revelation. 
Because the point is, look how it ends. We're victorious. We have something to celebrate. Despite the suffering, we know how it ends. And the rejoicing. So here's kind of the third key or instruction to how we fight this fight we find ourselves in. We display a confidence in God's victory. We need to love God's word. We need to proclaim God's word. And we need to display a confidence in God's victory. We know how it ends. I don't care if they kill us in the street. We get the breath of life brought to us. We get called up to heaven. We rejoice. We get rewarded by the Father. We know how it ends. Display your confidence in him. And often, that looks like suffering well. That looks like suffering well. Guys, faith in how it ends should embolden faithfulness until it ends. You track with me on that? Faith in how it ends should embolden faithfulness until it ends. Listen, every disciple was brutally killed for proclaiming the gospel. Every disciple. There's some debate about Matthew, but most likely he was brutally stabbed to death. Every disciple was brutally killed for proclaiming the gospel. And this is not a back then type of thing. More Christians have been martyred for the gospel in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. And today there are Christians who willingly move to Lebanon and Afghanistan and East Asia and Sudan and Pakistan just to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, just to make him known knowing full well that this is going to make life harder. And they're going to be isolated and slandered, maybe put in jail and maybe killed. Guys, I get it. This isn't Lebanon. But we're still called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And being a witness for Christ is still going to cost you. And your boss may look at you funny. And that may affect you not getting that promotion. And that may affect your income. And then you may not get the car or house that you want. You may get left out of some groups. You may get looked at funny. But listen, church, we are not going to reach a fallen world if our greatest desire is to fit into it. That's not how you reach people. If you look at this world and you just, what you're really hard to say is, but I want to be liked. I want to fit in. I want to belong. That's not how we reach this world. And we are not going to reach a fallen world if we ourselves don't find the word of God sweet and just genuinely love it. And every time we're in here, we say, yes, this is better than what's out there. And what we have to realize is that suffering until Christ's return is part of our witness. It's not just a negative, unnecessary, necessary evil. It's part of our witness. It's an important part of our witness. In fact, on the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ said, you know, blessed are those who are reviled or persecuted because of me. What does he say right after that? You guys, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Suffering is an important part of our witness. It, it says that we think God is better than that promotion. We think God is better than what this world can give us. We think this God is better than just fitting in here. It, it says that we think that th- this life is not all that there is or what we're even living for. Sometimes we act like we have to save this world. We've got to fix this world. Like this is the place we really love. Instead of being people who proclaim the kingdom of God because that's the place we really love and long for. So be faithful unto death. That's what he told Smyrna. 
One of the two faithful churches. Be faithful unto death. And why could they be faithful unto death? Because you'll get the crown of life. Death isn't all, all there is. It's not the end. Remember the, the saints that are under the altar kind of pleading like, how long till you vindicate us? It's like, well, a little longer because my plan, more of my people have to die. But guys, we can be faithful unto death because Christ beat death. Right? Remember 1 Corinthians 15? It's like Paul saying, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Like, I'm not afraid of you anymore. What happened to the two witnesses? They were killed. Then what? Raised to life. Come on up here, guys. Like, is this what you're afraid of? Like, he's trying to give us boldness in the midst of our calling. Guys, we proclaim the gospel no matter the cost because of the gospel. We proclaim the gospel no matter the cost because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, we can handle not getting that promotion. Because we're fellow heirs with Christ. Because of the gospel, we can handle some social rejection. Because we have the acceptance of the Father. Who cares what Bert in accounting thinks of you? Right? Sorry if Bert works in accounting. Right? We, can, we can handle, because of the gospel, we can handle being slandered by other people. Because we'll be vindicated on the last day when we're raised to life. Because of the gospel, we can handle even death because we'll be raised to life with Christ. Okay, so how do Christians fight this culture war that we find ourselves in? We love the word of God. We proclaim the word of God. And no matter the cost, we display confidence in the victory of God. We know how it ends. That's what it means to be a witness. And that's what we're called to. We, we don't go out and win this battle. Stay in your lane. That's above your pay grade. Jesus has got an angel army. He's got this. And it's not a fair fight. Like, ooh, good and evil. No, it's done. But what we're called to do is be witnesses. Because before that seventh trumpet sounds, we're ambassadors of Christ pleading with people. Be reconciled to God. And reconciliation to God is possible because Christ's body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. So our king is coming. And you can either taste his wrath or you can taste his grace. And his grace is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.